Welcome to Mysteries Abound, a collection of stories about the unusual, the strange, the perplexing, and the downright odd. In our world today, Mysteries Abound. Welcome everyone to episode 31 of Mysteries Abound. I know I haven't done one for a long time and I said that I mightn't do any more considering the podcast closed. But after an email from Sandra from Surprise in Arizona, I got to thinking I did say in the closure that I might bring Mysteries Abound back. I'm not going to bring it back as a weekly podcast, but every now and then I think I'll just pop in a show just to keep the podcast alive. So here it is, episode 31. The first story for this episode comes from the www.guardian.co.uk website and it's by Maeve Kennedy. A relic reveals Noah's Ark was circular. That they processed aboard the enormous floating wildlife collection 2 by 2 is well known. Less familiar, however, is the possibility that the animals Noah shepherded onto his ark then went round and round inside. According to newly translated instructions inscribed in ancient Babylonian on a clay tablet telling the story of the ark, the vessel that saved one virtuous man, his family, and the animals from God's watery wrath was not the pointy proud craft of popular imagination, but rather a giant circular reed raft. The now battered tablet aged about 3,700 years, was found somewhere in the Middle East by Leonard Simmons, a largely self-educated Londoner who indulged his passion for history while serving in the RAF from 1945 to 1948. The relic was passed on to his son Douglas, who took it to one of the few people in the world who could read it as easily as the back of a cornflakes box. He gave it to Irving Finkel, a British museum expert who translated its 60 lines of neat cuneiform script. There are dozens of ancient tablets that have been found which describe the flood story, but Finkel says this one is the first to describe the vessel's shape. In all the images ever made, people assumed the Ark was, in effect, an ocean-going boat with a pointed stem and stern for riding the waves, so that is how they portrayed it, said Finkel. But the ark didn't have to go anywhere, it just had to float, and the instructions are for a type of craft which they knew very well. It's still sometimes used in Iran and Iraq today, a type of round coracle which they would have known exactly how to use to transport animals across a river or floods. Finkel's research throws light on the familiar Mesopotamian story, which became the account in Genesis in the Old Testament, of Noah and the ark that saved his menagerie from the waters which drowned every other living thing on earth. In his translation, the God who has decided to spare one just man speaks to Atram Hassis, a Sumerian king who lived before the flood and who is the Noah figure 
in earlier versions of the Ark story. Wall, wall, read wall, read wall, Atram Hasis, pay heed to my advice that you may live forever, destroy your house, build a boat, despise possessions, and save life. Draw out the boat that you will build with a circular design, let its length and breadth be the same. The tablet goes on to command the use of plaited palm fibre, waterproofed with bitumen, before the construction of cabins for the people and wild animals. It ends with the dramatic command of Atram Hasis to the unfortunate boat builder whom he leaves behind to meet his fate, about sealing up the door once everyone else is safely inside. When I shall have gone into the boat, cork the frame of the door. Fortunes were spent in the 19th century by biblical archaeology enthusiasts in hunts for evidence of Noah's Ark. The Mesopotamian flood myth was incorporated into the great poetic epic Gilgamesh and Finkel, curator of the recent British Museum exhibition on ancient Babylon, believes that it was during the Babylonian captivity that the exiled Jews learned the story, brought it home with them and incorporated it into the Old Testament. Despite its unique status, Simmons's tablet, which has been dated to around 1700 BC and is only a few centuries younger than the oldest known account, was very nearly overlooked. When my dad eventually came home, he shipped a whole tea chest of this kind of stuff home. Seals, tablets, bits of pottery, said Douglas. He would have picked them up in bazaars or when people knew he was interested in this sort of thing and they would have brought them to him and earned a few bob. Simmons Sr. became a scenery worker at the BBC but kept up his love of history and was very disappointed when academics dismissed treasures of his as commonplace and worthless. His son took the tablet to a British Museum open day where Finkel took one look at it and nearly fell off his chair with excitement. It is the most extraordinary thing, Simmons said of the tablet. You hold it in your hand and you instantly get a feeling that you are directly connected to a very ancient past and it gives you a shiver down your spine. The human fascination with the flood and the whereabouts of the ark shows few signs of subsiding. The story has travelled down the centuries from the ancient Babylonians and continues to fascinate in the 21st century. Countless expeditions have travelled to Mount Ararat in Turkey where Noah's Ark is said to have come to rest, but scientific proof of its existence has yet to be found. Recent efforts to find it have been led by creationists who are keen to exhibit it as evidence of the literal truth of the Bible. If the flood of Noah indeed wiped out the entire human race and its civilization, as the Bible teaches, then the ark constitutes the one remaining major link to the pre-flood world, says John D. Morris of the Institute for Creation Research. No significant artefact could ever be of greater antiquity or importance. In the Victorian era, some became obsessed with the ark story. George Smith the lowly British Museum assistant who in 1872 deciphered the flood tablet which is inscribed with the Assyrian version of the Noah's Ark tale could apparently not contain his excitement at his discovery. According to the museum's archives, he jumped up and down and rushed about the room in a great state of excitement and to the astonishment of those present began to undress himself.
And whilst we're looking at the religious history of the past and the tales associated with it, from the news.bbc.co.uk website, Jesus may have visited England, says a Scottish academic. Jesus Christ could have come to Britain to further his education, according to a Scottish academic. Church of Scotland minister Dr Gordon Strawn makes the claim in a new film entitled And Did Those Feet. The film examines the story of Jesus' supposed visit, which survives in the popular hymn Jerusalem. Dr Strawn believes it is possible Jesus came to England for his studies, as it was the forefront of learning 2,000 years ago. Coming this far wasn't in fact that far in the olden days, Dr Strawn told BBC Radio 4's The World at One. The Romans came here at the same time and they found it quite easy. Dr Strawn added that Jesus had plenty of time to do the journey, as little was known about his life before the age of 30. The legend that Jesus Christ came to Britain was popularised in a poem written by William Blake in the early 19th century and made famous as a hymn 100 years later. Now the first words of the hymn, and Did Those Feet, are the title of a new film based on a book researched by Dr Strawn who lectures on the history of architecture at Edinburgh University. It is generally suggested that he came to the west of England with his uncle, Joseph of Arimathea, who was here for the tin, said the academic. Dr Strawn claimed Jesus Christ could have come to England to further his education. He needed to go around to learn bits and pieces about ancient wisdom, and the Druids in Britain went back hundreds, if not thousands of years. He probably came here to meet the Druids, to share his wisdom and gain theirs. Among the places Jesus is said to have visited are Penzance, Falmouth, St Justin Roseland and Lowe, which are all in Cornwall, as well as Glastonbury in Somerset, which has particular legends about Jesus. St Augustine wrote to the Pope to say he'd discovered a church in Glastonbury built by the followers of Jesus, but St Gildas, a 6th century British cleric, said it was built by Jesus himself. It's a very, very ancient church, which went back perhaps to AD 37. And an interesting story from the telegraph.co.uk website. A story about a deception from World War II, and it's written by Ian Johnston. A historian claims to have finally identified a wartime man who never was. A historian claims to have conclusively proved the identity of the man who never was, whose body was used in a spectacular plot to deceive the Germans over the invasion of Sicily in the Second World War. It was a turning point in the Second World War. As the Allies prepared to invade Sicily in 1943, they wanted to dupe the Germans into thinking that their attack would be aimed elsewhere. To carry out the deception, a plan was concocted in which a body was dumped into the sea to be discovered by Axis forces, carrying fake secret documents, suggesting the invasion would be staged in Greece, 500 miles away. Incredibly, the trick worked and the diversion of German troops to Greece has been credited by historians with playing a major part in the success of the Sicily invasion. The episode was later immortalised in the 1956 film The Man Who Never Was. Yet to this day, just whose body was used in Operation Mincemeat has remained a source of secrecy, confusion and conspiracy theory.
In a forthcoming book, a historian claims to have finally established beyond any reasonable doubt the identity of the person who played the part of the dead man, a homeless Welshman called Gwyndwyr Michael. The body which was given the identity of a fake Royal Marine called Major William Martin was dropped into the sea off Spain in 1943. Winston Churchill had remarked that anybody but a bloody fool would have known it was Sicily, but after the tides carried Major Martin's body into the clutches of Nazi agents, Hitler and his high command became convinced Greece was the target. We know it's in Greece, proclaimed General Alfred Jodl, head of the German Supreme Command Operations Staff. Mincemeat swallowed, rod, line and sinker was the message sent to Churchill after the Allies learned the plot had worked. In recent years, there have been repeated claims that Mincemeat's chief planner, Lieutenant Commander Ewan Montague, was so intent on deceiving the Germans that he stole the body of a crew member from HMS Dasher, a Royal Navy aircraft carrier which exploded off the Scottish coast in March 1943 and lied to the dead man's relatives. In 2003, a documentary based on 14 years of research by former police officer Colin Gibbon claimed that Major Martin was Dasher sailor Tom Martin. Then in 2004, official sanction appeared to be given to another candidate, Tom Martin's crewmate, John Melville. At a memorial service on board the current HMS Dasher, a Royal Navy patrol vessel off the coast of Cyprus, Lieutenant Commander Mark Hill named Mr Melville as Major Martin, describing him as a man who most certainly was. Mr Melville's daughter, Isabel Mackay, later told the Scotsman newspaper, I feel very honoured if my father saved 30,000 Allied lives. However, Professor Dennis Smith, a historian at Toronto University, whose book Operation Mincemeat, Death, Deception and the Mediterranean D-Day, is due to be published later this year, believes he has now finally laid to rest such conspiracy theories. During his research, he came across a most secret memo written by Commander Montague, the significance of which appears to have been overlooked and which Professor Smith says proves the body of Mr Michael, who was mentally ill and died after ingesting rat poison at the time the operation was being planned, was used. Mr Michael was first proposed as the man who never was by an amateur historian in 1996 but the evidence to support this failed to convince supporters of the Dasher theory. Tellingly, the memo unearthed by Professor Smith was written after the body had been buried in Spain and addressed fears among senior officers that it would be exhumed for a second post-mortem which would confirm Major Martin was a fake. In it, Commander Montague reports a conversation he had with Coroner Dr William Bentley Purchase Mincemeat, the body, took a minimal dose of a rat poison containing phosphorus. This dose was not sufficient to kill him outright, and its only effect was to so impair the functioning of the liver that he died a little time afterwards. Apart from the smallness of the dose, the next point is that phosphorus is not one of the poisons readily traceable after long periods, such as arsenic, which invades the roots of the hair. Professor Smith said, what they talk about is whether the traces of the rat poison this person had taken could show up. So the person buried in Spain died from taking rat poison, not drowning, and therefore it is Mr Michael. People love a conspiracy, and a group has emerged who argue that this body was entirely unsuitable because it would have been riddled with rat poison. I think I've demolished what they think is the case for the counter-argument that this body wouldn't have passed muster in the post-mortem. The post-mortem verdict was precisely as the British had expected. It was deemed to be a victim of drowning. Asked about the 2004 ceremony on HMS Dasher, Professor Smith said, It is very embarrassing. I think this seals it. I've also been able to establish, I think beyond any reasonable, any rational doubt, the identity of the corpse involved. However, John Steele, 
author of The Secrets of HMS Dasher, insisted Mr. Michael would not have passed muster as a Marine because he was an alcoholic. Although Professor Smith says there is no record of his illness and said he remains convinced it was Melville. I've received a comprehensive report from a top dental expert regarding the teeth of Mr. Michael, what he would expect to find. There is no comparison whatsoever between the body of an alcoholic tramp and that of a Royal Marine, he said. I can tell you Montague pinched a body. There's no way a brilliant barrister such as Montague would take one slight risk that this operation would go haywire. Montague was meticulous and would never have sent the body of a tramp. Bill Jewell, the commander of the submarine Serif, said it was highly unlikely the body of a tramp would have been used in this operation and he put it into the water with three of his officers. He claims Montague decided not only to fool the Germans, but also his own commanders, whose first reaction was this is macabre, this doesn't happen in England. All the secrecy was imposed because the body used was from Dasher, Mr Steele said, and we couldn't have the British public finding out that a body was stolen. Mr Melville's daughter, Mrs Mackay, 70 of Galashiels in the Scottish borders, said she agreed with Mr Steele. The whole thing finished for me in Cyprus when the Dasher was honoured and the Navy asked me out there. That is it as far as I'm concerned, she said. From the www.unmuseum.org website The Legend of the Lambton Worm In the northeast part of England there is a legend from medieval times about a giant worm that terrorised the region. Now, a worm might not seem to be a very interesting creature to build a story of terror about until you realise that the old English form of the word worm or W-Y-R-M, refers to a humongous snake or dragon. Though there are slightly different versions of the tale told all around the area, the basic story is as follows. A rebellious young man named John Lambton, heir of the Lambton estate in County Durham, decided to go fishing one Sunday morning. Though he was warned by a mysterious old man that no good could come of skipping church, Lambton is unsuccessful in catching anything out of the local river where until he pulls in a strange fish. The eel-like creature has the head of a salamander and nine holes on either side of its skull. Lambton doesn't like the look of it at all and declares he has caught the devil. On the advice of the old man, he decides not to return it to the river, but instead decides to throw it down a convenient well. Lambton grows up and goes off to fight in the Crusades. The creature apparently thrives in the underground and grows and grows inside the well, eventually poisoning the water. When it finally emerges, it has grown to a humongous size and begins terrorising the land by eating livestock along with the occasional village child. It also approaches Lambton Manor, where John's father manages to placate it on a daily basis by filling a stone trough outside the building with fresh milk for it to drink. In between assaults on the surrounding countryside, the creature relaxes by wrapping itself around the base of a hill. Various villages and knights come to slay the monster but find that slicing off sections of the worm is ineffective as the creature seems to be able to reattach lost parts without much permanent damage. Moreover, anyone who comes too close to the worm finds themselves caught in its coils and slowly squeezed to death. 
young John comes home from the Crusades to find his father's land in ruin from the worm. He vows to destroy the creature and seeks the aid of a local witch. The witch first tells John that he is responsible for the worm's existence by his actions as a boy and this increases his determination to rid the land of it. The witch's advice is to go to the local blacksmith and have his armour covered with razor-sharp spear points. Then he should catch the worm as he lays wrapped around a great rock down by the river and fight him there. She warns Lambton that if he is successful in his quest, he will be required to kill the first living thing he sees after his victory or the Lambton family will be cursed for nine generations and no heir will die peacefully in his bed. Brave Sir John takes her suggestions to heart and they prove to be the keys he needs to defeat the beast. When the animal gets a hold of him in its coils, it cannot squeeze him to death as the spear points on his armour will be driven into the creature's body. Because he is fighting the worm on the edge of the river Ware, any parts he cuts off the monster fall into the water and are swept downstream, so the beast cannot heal itself by reattaching them. After a titanic battle, John Lambton is victorious. It has been arranged that at his bugle signal, one of his hunting hounds will be released. It will run to him and John will slay it to save his family from the curse. As it happens, however, John's father forgets about the signal and runs out himself to greet his son after the victory. John does not have the heart to kill his father and the family is cursed for nine generations. The Lambton Worm is a fascinating and colourful legend. Is there any evidence that it is true? Certainly parts of the story are rooted in reality. Though the present Lambton Castle in County Durham did not exist at the time of the legend, it seems likely that a Lambton estate has been on the same location for several centuries. The castle, in its present form, was built by John George Lambton, the first Earl of Durham, in the early 19th century. During that period, the Lambton family made a lot of money from the coal mining business and put it into reconstructing the castle. Ironically, the castle suffered substantial damage when the very coal mines that had paid for it collapsed underneath the structure in the 1930s. The River Ware, where John Lambton supposedly caught the monster, does really run through County Durham. The hill mentioned in the legend as the creature's resting place is said to be either Penshaw Hill or Worm Hill. Penshaw Hill, which is topped by a replica of a Greek Doric temple built to honour the first Earl of Durham, is often pictured in modern drawings of the worm. This is an anachronism as the temple wasn't built until 1844, several centuries after the legendary monster was dead. More likely, the actual hill involved in the story is Worm Hill, located several miles away. It is said that for many years afterwards, the marks the worm made while wrapped around the hill could be seen by those passing by. The final portion of the story involves the curse. Did nine generation of Lamptons die violent deaths? At least some of them may have, given that the Lamptons were involved in such actions as the English Civil War. However, a premature end to their lives doesn't seem all that unlikely. The curse may also have been self-fulfilling. It is said that by the ninth generation, one Lambton slept with a horsewhip by his bedside to defend himself in fear that his servants might take actions to make the curse come true. Unfortunately, all this circumstantial evidence doesn't add up to the worm legend being based in reality. Indeed, the story has all the earmarks of a good yarn, including a morality lesson. You should go to church on Sunday, not go fishing. Parts of it also mirror other tales. The command the witch gives to kill the first living thing seen after victory sounds a lot like the story of Jephthah from the Bible. Jephthah promised to God that in return for his victory, he would make a burnt sacrifice of the first living thing that greeted him on his return to his home. 
Unfortunately, he was not met by a goat or lamb, but by his teenage daughter. Unlike John Lambton, however, Jephthah kept his vow. The fact that the tale isn't true hasn't discouraged people from telling it over and over in different ways. In 1867, C.M. Lumaine wrote a folk song about the worm. Many variations of the basic song are still sung throughout the region. In 1911, Bram Stoker, the Anglo-Irish novelist that also wrote Dracula, penned The Lair of the White Worm, based on the Lambton legend. Stoker, who spent most of his professional life as the business manager of the Lyceum Theatre, earned additional money by writing books. His position with the theatre took him on tour throughout the world and allowed him to collect legends and folktales, which he worked into his novels. While Lair of the White Worm is considered one of Stoker's lesser works, and his last, he would die the following year, it does reflect much of the Lambton Worm legend within its pages. In 1978, the story of the Lambton Worm became an opera written by Robert Sherlaw Johnson and Anne Riddler. A decade later, the legend was again brought to the attention of the world when producer Ken Russell released his motion picture version of the Stoker book. The Lair of the White Worm, starred a young Hugh Grant as the aristocratic descendant of the legendary Lambton hero, whose name has been changed for the film to John Dampton. Grant's character finds himself in trouble when he discovers that the giant worm from the myth really isn't quite dead, but living under his estate. Russell's script is partly based on Stoker's book, but also draws heavily directly from the legend. The folk song by Lemaine also finds its way into the movie belted out by a rural rock band. It is still possible to visit County Durham and see some of the places connected to the legend. Lambton Castle, Penshaw Temple and Worm Hill as well as others. If you travel there, however, it might be wise to avoid fishing in the River Ware on Sunday morning. just listened to the last story with interest and at the end assumed that the giant snake or the worm may have been the thing of myth or legend. Well, maybe not. From the www.livescience.com website, 45 foot ancient snake devoured crocodile. The largest snake the world has ever known likely had a diet that included crocodile, or at least an ancient relative of the reptile. Scientists have discovered a 60 million year old ancient crocodile fossil, which has been named a new species in northern Colombia, South America. The site, one of the world's largest open pit coal mines, also yielded skeletons of the giant boa constrictor-like Titanoboa which measured up to 45 feet long. Crocodiliforms are extinct reptiles that are distant relatives of modern crocodiles and alligators. We are starting to flesh out the fauna that we have from there, said study author Alex Hastings, a graduate student at the Florida Museum of Natural History. The skull and other specimens used in the study show the newly discovered species, and I'll try to get this right, named Ceragonisuchus imprecaris, and grew only six to seven feet long, making it easy prey for Titanoboa. Clearly, this new fossil would have been part of the food chain, both as predator and prey, said Jonathan Block, a Florida Museum vertebrate paleontologist and associate curator. 
giant snakes today are known to eat crocodilians, and it is not much of a reach to say Sarah Joni Sushis would have been a frequent meal for Titanoboa. Fossils of the two are often found side by side, added Block, who was part of the fossil hunting expeditions. Indeed, anacondas have been documented consuming caimans, reptiles in the same family as crocodiles, in the Amazon. The new croc species is the smallest member of Diosauridae, a family of now extinct crocodiliforms. Diosaurids typically grew to about 18 feet and had long tweezer-like snouts for eating fish. By contrast, the newly discovered species had a much shorter snout, indicating a more generalised diet that likely included frogs, lizards, small snakes and possibly mammals. It seems that Serajonosuchus managed to tap into a feeding resource that wasn't useful to other larger crocodiliforms, Hastings said. The study reveals an unexpected level of diversity among dirosaurids, said Christopher A. Broku, a paleontologist at the University of Iowa who was not involved in the study. Scientists previously believed dirosaurids diversified in the paleogene, the period of time following the mass extinction of dinosaurs. But this study reinforces the view that much of their diversity was in place before the mass extinction event, Broku said. Somehow, dirosaurids survived the mass extinction intact, while other marine reptile groups, such as mosasaurs and plesiosaurs, died out completely. And from the damninteresting.com website, The Peculiar Phenomenon of Mega Cryometeors, written by Ellen Bellows. Hail in and of itself is not an unusual weather phenomenon. The frozen precipitation occurs inside storm clouds, when water droplets are cooled below freezing, yet remain in a liquid state. When the supercooled water encounters something solid, such as a speck of dust or an ice crystal, it sticks to the particle and freezes. Updrafts in the storm keep the hailstone aloft as it aggregates ice, growing until its weight is too heavy for the updraft, at which time it plunges to the earth. Some scientists believe there is a larger, more sinister type of ice chunk precipitation which can form outside of storms, making even the largest hailstones look puny in comparison. There is a great deal of disagreement in the scientific community regarding the origin of these falling slabs of ice, but it is certain that something is causing massive frozen chunks to occasionally drop from seemingly empty skies. These objects are called mega cryometeors. The term was coined by researcher Jesus Martinez Fries, a planetary geologist from Madrid, Spain. In the year 2000, he investigated a series of such mystery ice meteors, which began with a four and a half pound object that smashed through the windshield of a parked car in the city of Tokina. It fell out of a clear, sunny sky in January. Soon there were reports of similar incidents in the surrounding area, which continued at irregular intervals for about a week before they stopped, as mysteriously as they had started. Over the past decade, over 50 such objects have been recorded worldwide. Some have been as small as about one pound, but one monstrous mass of ice that fell in Brazil weighed about 400 pounds, 
almost a quarter of a tonne, and crashed through the roof of a Mercedes-Benz factory. One recently made headlines in Oakland, California, weighing over 200 pounds and creating a dent in the earth three feet deep. A similar event occurred recently in Chicago, crashing through the roof of a house. Martinez Frias led the research on the objects in Spain, examining the ice and impact sites from multiple megacryometeors. The ice was found to be free of urine, faeces and disinfecting solutions, so it was determined that its source was not an aeroplane's frozen waste water. In fact, at the times of several of the events, the official records of air traffic control showed no aeroplanes in the skies over the areas in question. The makeup of the ice was vastly different from that of comets, so an extraterrestrial origin was ruled out. But the composition of the frozen water did bear a very striking resemblance to that of a well-known weather phenomenon, hail. The mysterious ice blobs, like hail, have been found to contain air bubbles, onion-like layering and traces of ammonia and silica. The icy objects also have isotopic distributions of oxygen-18 and deuterium, similar to those found in hailstones. Aside from their surprising mass and their tendency to plunge one at a time from clear skies, the ice balls are almost identical to hail. Adding further intrigue to the investigation, it was discovered that there were several peculiar conditions in the high atmosphere over Spain that day. Ozone levels were lower than normal, causing the troposphere to be particularly warm and the stratosphere to be particularly cold. Also, the lower stratosphere was more humid than usual and there was strong wind shear in the upper atmosphere. Martinez Frias and his team speculate that these meteorological ingredients may have worked together to create a situation where ice balls formed high in the atmosphere, aggregating ice as they descended until they grew to enormous size. They believe that the recent increase in the frequency of these megacryometeors worldwide may be due to the effects of global warming. Many scientists are sceptical of the notion that these ice chunks are atmospheric conglomerations. Their most likely source, according to some, is passing aircraft. It may be that rainwater collects on the fuselage of the aircraft, freezes during flight and then becomes dislodged and falls to earth. Although Martinez Frias was unable to find evidence of passing aircraft during the times of several events, it is possible that the flight control records do not include all military and private aircraft. Another possible explanation is that Martinez Frias and his team have been duped by an elaborate hoax. But that seems unlikely given the numerous megacryometeor events which have occurred worldwide over a span of many years. Consider also Brazil's 400-pound behemoth. Such an ice ball would be exceedingly difficult to create and deliver without spending a great deal of money and drawing some attention. Another factor ruling out a hoax is that such ice meteor events have been recorded, though with much less frequency, since times before aircraft were invented. Whether or not you subscribe to the idea that humankind can have such a serious impact on our planet's weather systems, it is certain that the hail-from-hell theory is worth investigating. Regardless of the cause, it is vaguely alarming to consider that on occasion, very large chunks of ice can fall out of a clear blue sky without explanation. Even more troubling, it seems to be happening more and more.
From the paranormal.about.com website, a story by Nikki W. And what makes this a little bit stranger, for me at least, is that this story happened on January 12, 2010, at the Gold Coast in Australia. Now, the Gold Coast is a beautiful beach area of Australia, and it's only about 60 miles or 100 kilometres from where I live. This happened to me last night, and I have tried searching all over the net to try and get some rational information about what I saw, or why I saw it. I woke at 2am to see what looked to be the traditional Grim Reaper. It stood in the doorway of my bedroom, with its hooded head touching the top of the doorframe. It was in a dark robe, and the creature held the blade in its left hand or it was leaning to the left side, and had no face. It was completely black. I didn't see a skeleton image, as seems quite common in illustrations. I lay there with my husband next to me, blinking to fix my vision. I even pinched myself. The vision was there for seven to eight minutes. It looked over its right shoulder into our hallway. Then I blinked, and it was gone. After I got over the initial fright of what I saw, I then went and checked my daughter. She was fine. This really scared me and took some time to fall back to sleep. I would like information on what this may mean. Why visit us? We are a young family with good health. Are there steps you can take to protect yourself from the paranormal? I can tell you, I hope it doesn't visit again. And to conclude the podcast for today, Gnome in the Closet by Katrina H. It occurred in the year 1989 in Crockett, California. Just like most homes in the town, we lived in a very old house over 80 years old. I was 11 years old in 1989. My older sister frequently had stories of scary paranormal incidents in the house, but I honestly never believed her. So, one night in 1989, I was trying to go to sleep in my room. I was having trouble falling asleep. I really didn't feel tired at all. I was semi-unconsciously tapping a rhythmic beat on the side of my metal bed frame. All of a sudden, it dawned on me that I could hear the same beat in the wall on the opposite side of the bed. Not thinking anything weird yet, I stopped my tapping and the same rhythmic tapping continued from the wall. I still wasn't scared. Honestly, the tapping incident all happened so fast, I didn't have time to process it. It is what happened next that terrified me. As soon as I realised the tapping was continuing in the wall, and it wasn't from me, I turned my head and inadvertently was faced towards my deep walk-in closet. In the back of the closet was a small, man-like creature. He had beady black eyes and a beard. He was probably two feet tall. I didn't stick around to take a closer look. I ran as fast as I could, screaming from my room. I was never a kid who had nightmares or needed to sleep with my mum. It wasn't like I was a little kid anymore. I was 11 years old when this happened. I have honestly never been so terrified in my life. That man was there. I saw him. After calming me down, my mum went into my bedroom, checked out the closet and said nothing was there and closed and locked the door. My mum convinced me that I saw an illusion and that was the end of it. About four years later, I was writing an essay about the experience for my high school English class. As we were driving in the car, I reminded my mother of that night in 1989. My mum just looked over at me and told me that she had seen the man too. She saw what I saw. She said she just couldn't believe that it was true and thought it had to be something else, so she just closed and locked the door. It was a relief to know that I wasn't crazy that night because I knew I wasn't half asleep or just seeing things. 
But then again, I had to try and convince myself that I had been wrong about the man. It was quite scary all over again to realise that in the bedroom that I still slept in every night had once upon a time had a paranormal creature watching me and trying to communicate with me. As an adult, I started reading a book about demonic possession. On page 8 of the book, it discussed how demons frequently engage children in communicating with them through knocking on walls. I literally threw the book and never picked it up again. I'm not a big paranormal buff, but was there a demon in my closet? A gnome? Elf? Just an illusion? I don't know. But that's my story. Well, that concludes episode 31 of Mysteries Abound. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. I know it's been a while since the last one and I said I wasn't going to do any more, but I just had to throw this one in. And remember, this is especially for you, Sandra, in Surprise, Arizona. Many thanks for your great emails. I hope you enjoyed the show. So it's bye for now, everyone. And I'll catch you all again in episode 92 of Origins.